0: But I think even more attractive thing about the SBIR program today is that they really have taken on an entrepreneurial view, especially the AFWorks program. But even NSF, we saw the same thing with NSF. They've taken on an entrepreneurial view and they really do care about um, helping companies find customers inside of the government. And, and we've seen it like in, in the AFWorks program, they really try hard. They've Lots of different uh, mechanisms for matching technologies with potential groups inside of the Department of Defense. Their mission is really to be able to help companies that have new ideas and innovative technologies, bring those to real customers inside of defense applications. And that, the, the finding customer part of it, is super valuable.
1: This is Undiluted the show about the amazing founders and companies who've used government R&D grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We're Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT and Jeff Orson from FedScout. On today's show, we talked with Louis Rosenberg from the NMS AI about his experience founding SBIR-backed companies in the early 90s and in the 2018s. how we've seen the program change, and how different kinds of founders can best leverage different federal programs.
0: My initial entrepreneurial experiences really started back in 1991, so over 30 years ago. And I was a graduate student at Stanford back then, and I was very interested in what was a brand new field of virtual reality. The, the phrase virtual reality had only been around for a few years, and it was you know, the cutting edge of new and interesting things for people like me who were focused on human-computer interaction. That's what I was doing my doctoral degree in and what i was uh, most excited about and so i was at the time doing research at stanford and at nasa in virtual reality uh, headsets and so i was really excited about the technology of vr and and i really started thinking about markets like okay there's only a few labs in the world working on this stuff in my mind i thought okay this technology of virtual reality is eventually going to be everywhere it's going to be Uh, a huge market and huge opportunities. And so I I really started thinking further out into the future than I had up until that point to try to imagine what's the world going to be like in, let's say, 10 years, uh, instead of just what am I working on for next week. And at the time, I was really impressed and excited about virtual reality. You know, I was a programmer. I was spending hours and hours with headsets on and a adjusting code and then testing and adjusting code. While I loved the prospect of virtual reality, it felt very enclosed to me and isolating to wear this headset and be just cut off from the real world. And what I really wanted to do, the overwhelming feeling I had was take this idea of virtual reality and just splash it all over the real world. And so that these virtual uh, experiences could be just part of your natural view of the world and you didn't feel cut off from the world. Today, we call that augmented reality, but that didn't exist back then. And so what I really wanted to do is work on that, but nobody was working on that. And so I actually pitched the idea as a graduate student to the U.S. Air Force. And I was lucky enough to get fellowship from the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, so AFOSR, that uh, funded my effort to work on this idea that didn't yet have a a name of augmented reality at Air Force Research Laboratory. And they were excited and they gave me this fellowship. And really, that was my first entrepreneurial experience in that I convinced some people to give me money to do something um, that was new and interesting. It sent me off to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where I built a system called uh, the Virtual Fixtures Platform, which was um, this crazy contraption where you wore a full exoskeleton and you were able to interact with the real world and the virtual world at the same time, real and virtual objects. And it was an amazing experience for me. And and the thing that was... um, most significant about that experience was because it was an experience about humans and computers i had to have lots and lots of people come test my system and i was actually doing rigorous tests on human subjects the the point of the research was to show that we could use augmented reality and this was 1992 to enhance people's performance in manual tasks and the research worked and it showed that we can enhance performance but What was most impactful to me, and again, very entrepreneurial, was that every time a person would step out of the system, and again, they were just a test subject who was, who really, we weren't, I wasn't asking them for their feedback, but they would get out with, you know, big smiles on their face. And they would say this virtual reality, augmented reality experience is amazing. And one day this is going to be everywhere. And and every single person who would come out of the system would say that, would tell me the same thing. This is amazing. Like they'd never seen or heard of anything like this. This is amazing. It's going to be everywhere. And I agreed. And so I, I, I also believe people like this, I want to work in this field. And so when I, when I finished my PhD, I wanted to work on virtual reality, augmented reality. And there were, you know, maybe just one or two or three companies at that time working on anything in virtual reality, nobody working in augmented reality. And so uh, 1993, it inspired me to say, you know what, I'm going to start my own company to do this stuff. And so I founded one of the early virtual reality companies in 1993 called Immersion Corporation. And uh, in fact, to get that off the ground, the very first money that we got in was from an SBIR grant from the NSF. And so the NSF gave us $60,000, which was the size of a phase one grant back in 1994. And we were very appreciative to get that money. And that actually is what got us started. And then after that, we ended up getting additional SBIR grants from the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy and the National Institute of Health. And it really allowed us to to build immersion corporation as a successful company and we did also take investment from you know investors from venture capitalists but that came after the federal funding and in fact the federal funding was a really big credibility booster when we went out to get money from investors to say hey your national science foundation department of defense have been funding this work and so that was my first experience of building a a company uh, with federal funds, and Immersion Corporation was founded in 1993. In 1999, we brought the company public on NASDAQ, and I left in 2002 to start additional companies, which I can talk about, but yeah, it was my first entrepreneurial experience, and I feel like I owe a lot of gratitude Certainly to the U.S. Air Force for funding my in very initial ideas and then the National Science Foundation for funding initial company and the Department of Defense. It helped build a successful commercial entity that created lots of jobs. Immersion's actually still around today. It's over 30 years. They're still a, a functioning, successful company, even though I'm not involved. So that's my first entrepreneurial experience.
1: Wow. Congratulations on that success. That's, I mean, really wonderful. And I love that it's still going on. I mean, even though you're not involved with it, that's still got to be really gratifying to have that legacy out there. Yeah, absolutely. The things that we did back in 93, 94, 95
0: still have relevance. And it also showed me the value of getting feedback from real people very early on, real users as early on as as possible, because that, I think, guided us in the right direction from the start. And the value of getting federal funding to help do pure R&;D when you're at the very early stages and your traditional investors, they just want to fund products which makes sense. but sometimes when you're at the beginning of a whole new field, getting some money to do pure R&;D is super valuable.
1: Even though the federal government was funding your product, your company's development, it doesn't sound like they were necessarily the customer or at least they're not a significant customer. And I, I think this is just a, a wonderful aspect of the SBIR program, is that even though the federal government's funding you, there's not necessarily a lot of expectation that you have to go work with them after the product's developed.
0: So that's absolutely true. And the money, the, the funding that we got from NSF and from Department of Defense and Department of Energy, it definitely pushed us to develop a uh, valuable and new and and really core technologies that got integrated into lots and lots of different products for different uses, but there was not an expectation that we were going to deliver a product to NSF or to Department of Defense, but those core technologies became so fundamental that ultimately, through various routes, they came back and supported work. The technologies themselves became useful for NSF and Department of Defense, and because we were developing really you know, fundamental tools and technologies that are used in, in virtual worlds now everywhere, from gaming to medicine to business. And so even if there's not an immediately obvious route of how this is going to go back to NSF, I think if you're developing something new and interesting and important, there's probably a long-term path of how it goes back to help. Um, I've been involved in, in a number of startups, and I'm currently involved in a startup that is also NSF, also SBIR funded, and we received a SBIR funding from National Science Foundation as well, and also from the Air Force. These days, the SBIR program actually does a better job at, at trying to help you find customers inside of a um, government agencies. And it's not required, but it's actually really helpful because these are potentially really good customers. My current company is called Unanimous AI, and we are an artificial intelligence company that is really a very different type of AI company, where most AI companies are focused on replacing people with algorithms, and there's lots of reasons to do that, to automate all kinds of processes that computers are, are potentially better at than people. But instead of doing that, instead of replacing people with algorithms, we actually use AI to connect groups of people together and allow human teams to make better decisions, to make more accurate decisions and estimations and forecasts. And so you could imagine it's useful for for all kinds of applications. And, and we've been working on this now for six years and, and we've had a lot of success with business teams, but the SBIR program has actually been helping us uh, break into new markets that are government and defense related because there's lots of uh, defense applications where you'd like to have a, a distributed group of people be able to come together and make more accurate decisions and, and estimations and predictions and Uh, assessments with the aid of AI. And it's in in some sense, hard to to break into defense markets. And the SBIR program is now very well structured to help small companies do that. You don't have to be Lockheed to get into the defense market, but it's really hard. And the SBIR program now is trying to help new startups become the next Lockheed.
1: I do think that the SBIR program has a sort of a special place within the the larger SBIR ecosystem. Number one, just because their topics are so broad, I would think that every single person listening would be able to find an NSF topic to apply under. That's one of the really cool things about NSF. But my experience, my perception, and would love your thoughts on this, is that NSF is also probably the hardest to win because there are so many people applying because it's so broad and because their technical expectations, like the rigor and the audacity of the problem that the company is trying to solve has to be so big. But again, that's my perception. I was curious if you had any thoughts on what it took for you guys to win, what you thought you had going for you, who you think NSF might be well suited to or anything else about them.
0: Yeah, I agree. The NSF program is really great for people who are doing fundamental research on something that's new and big and important. And they've set up the NSF SBIR program to be broad enough that it's pretty easy for most companies that are doing something innovative to fit into the application process that does make it more competitive to get awarded a grant just because I think there are just more applicants. The Department of Defense also has some broad paths, but they also have some very specific grants where they're looking for very specific solutions to, to, to problems. And there, if you happen to have a solution for that problem, you're in great position to win a grant because there's probably not as many companies looking to solve that problem. But there's a little bit of an exception there with, I'd say the Air Force has their AFWorks program, which, which takes a slightly different tact, which is, um, NSF, you're competing for a phase one grant. That's a large grant. I think at the uh, the one we won, phase one, was you know, $225,000 for a full year. And it's very rigorous. You really to know exactly what you're doing before you even apply. AFWERX for the Air Force has taken a different approach. They go for just a $50,000 four-month grant where you're coming in with a big idea and you are validating that there is a real inside of the Department of Defense for what you're doing. And so it's a smaller, faster, and in some sense, broader grant, but it's a good way to to get in and see if there really are customers who want what you want to develop. And if there aren't, you're lucky that you found that out after just four months instead of a couple of years.
1: Absolutely. So just thinking about this, On the business side a little bit, you started your first company in the mid-90s with SBIR. Sounds like you did a couple of other startups, entrepreneurial endeavors in the early 2000s and didn't use SBIRs or or federal funding. And now you came back to it with unanimous AI. And I I was curious if you can share some reflections on why why the unanimous was a good fit and why the previous ones weren't.
0: So uh, I think... Initially, in the early 90s, when uh, I was first doing SBIRs, it was really good pathway for fundamental research. And, and what I was doing had a good fit. In the 2000s, I wasn't looking for funding for fundamental research. And I might not have been aware that the SBIR program had changed and had a slightly different focus. And I'm not sure exactly when it might have changed, but now in the, you know, 2020s, the SBIR program still cares about research, but they've become more product-focused and more focused on helping find customers inside the government itself. And so for us at Unanimous AI, the funding is useful. Any company can benefit from grant money, but I think even more attractive thing about the SBIR program today... Is that they really have taken on an entrepreneurial view especially the afworks program but even nsf we saw the same thing with nsf they've taken on an entrepreneurial view and they really do care about um, helping companies find customers inside of the government and if that's successful that's you know potentially more valuable than the funding itself i've definitely seen a change of focus in the SBIR program. It's been valuable the whole time and a great thing for small startups. But this new focus or newer focus on, um, on also really helping to find uses in, in customers, uh, and customers. And we've seen it like in, in the AFWorks program. They've really tried hard. They've lots of different uh, mechanisms for matching technologies with potential groups inside of the Department of Defense. Their mission is really to be able to help companies that have new ideas and innovative technologies bring those to real customers inside of defense applications. And that, the, the finding customer part of it is super valuable.
1: Yeah, it is so true. I I think the number one thing that I've heard from doing this show is just how opaque and what a black box government is when you're coming from the outside and how difficult it is to get that meeting with a program officer when you're cold emailing somebody on LinkedIn or or from an email that you find on a website. I'm, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on what it's been like pitching the customers that Afworks has helped you find? How it may be different from a a commercial customer? It's definitely different than a commercial
0: customer, partly because at least inside of unanimous AI, our team doesn't really have military experience. And the the thing that you start to learn when you're talking to, to potential military customers is just that there is so many acronyms and just the procurement process and the acronyms, and it's just a different business culture and a different almost vernacular of how, just how the Department of Defense works. It can be overwhelming because, you know, that just doesn't happen. If you're talking to a Fortune 500 company, it's certainly a difficult customer, but there's not 20 different acronyms that you've never heard of before that come up in conversations. I think the, the, the Works program, I, I think they're helpful in that regard because once you have this AFWorks grant or contract, they introduce you to potential customers in a context where you've been endorsed to some degree by AFWorks. They're saying, hey, look at this. Look at the, what this company's doing. They might not really know anything. They, they might not understand your acronyms, but they we're telling you that this is useful to to look at and it helps it, it helps because it gives you even if you're clearly new to the space it gives you a level of credibility that you just wouldn't have had if you're just a random startup trying to contact a group inside of the air force
1: you know it's it's funny you say that because you know i spent a lot of time in federal acquisitions and reading the far and you know, reading baa's and rfps and it's amazing to me how the government has put so much process in place, and the justification for all this process is inevitably to create a fair playing field and to avoid, I don't know, corruption or you know, favoritism. And the reality is that it actually just reinforces the importance of of relationships. Yet you know, to your point, if you were randomly responding to RFPs, your tech is equally valid whether you're coming to that program office through a SBIR referral or through a, a response to an RFP, but because you're getting a warm introduction, it matters so much.
0: They'll respond to the email, which you, they might not have. And I think they also try hard to explain just the procurement process. I mean, I mean in addition to the acronyms, is just procurement and how, how it all works in government agencies is complex and different. And the AFWorks program at least tries to educate the companies that they're funding on a phase one about these processes. You're not going in blind.
1: For those people who are listening that are maybe on the fence about pursuing an SBIR, a lot of people frame SBIR or VC. Or they look at it as uh, an either-or decision process. I'm curious if you have any reflections for them about when they should choose to invest some real-time. An SBIR application is a non-trivial time investment, and inevitably the tech that you're going to be building is going to be slightly off-center from the tech that you'd be building for your commercial customers. So i was curious, do you have a framework that you can recommend to help people think through whether to invest time into an SBIR?
0: Yeah. So first it's definitely not either or. You can do both. I've done both. Uh, I've always done both. I really can't think of a downside to doing an SBIR, meaning the downside is potentially if you put time into to applying and then you don't win, but you could also put time into going after venture capital and, and not get it. You're always going to have a certain percentage of wins out of whatever you're doing. And it's not a huge amount of effort to apply for an SBIR. So I think from a you know cost benefit analysis, if you have a technology that is a fit, and you have a good use of the potential funds, which in phase one could be anywhere from 50,000 to 225,000, depending on the agency, then it's, uh, it's worth doing. And when you do apply for an SBAR, and if you win, you have the potential then to apply for a phase two which is, I think, between 750 and over a million, depending on the agency. And so there's real money that's potentially available. It's money that can be used for you know, research and development and creating new technologies that have product potential. The SBIR program is definitely focused. Their goal is not for you to, to create something that will become an interesting paper that can be published, or that's good. Their goal is to for you to create something that can be a product that can be sold. And so they're definitely aligned with the same interests of a business. And so that's good. And if you're going for venture capital funding as well, it, it is helpful. It's credibility. If you win an SBIR from um, NSF or NIH or, or Department of Energy or whatever the field is, um, That's a piece of credibility for venture capitalists that's telling them that experts looked at what you're doing, looked at the technology you're developing and thought it was worth giving money to. And it makes it just that much easier for the next person to invest money. And so I would say people should consider doing both. And for a brand new startup, depending on the state of your technology, if your technology already has some proof to it, you could potentially just get venture capital right out of the gate. But if you have to do R and D and you have to prove that something works, the SBIR grant is a really good way to do it. And I say that because if you're at a really early stage, that's the time when the venture capital is the most expensive to you. Meaning venture capitalists are going to give you money for the largest stake of your company when you have the least to show for yourself. And so at that early stage is when the SBIR money is worth the most because the Air Force is giving, or the the government, whatever agency, is giving you money and expecting really nothing in return other than a good effort to turn this into a business. And so it's definitely worth doing early on for sure.
1: You were a professor before you started unanimous and you encouraged many of your students to go pursue SBIR. I was curious, do you have any, having seen and advised multiple teams or early, early stage companies as they're making these decisions, do you have any reflections on who you thought were the characteristics of teams that were a good fit?
0: Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I spent six or seven years as a professor at California State University, Cal Poly out here in California, and I taught entrepreneurship and would teach students and teams about starting companies, about funding companies, about uh, raising venture capital, about considering all the options, angel investors, professional VCs, and also government funding. And, And I would encourage student teams to look at SBIR grants as a a really good option. I was teaching an undergraduate class, and these days, there are people who come right out of college and start companies, and they have very little business experience, and that's great. They might be coming out with primarily a technical background, and so they have a a good idea for technology, they have strong technical skills, and so an SBIR grant is actually potentially a better source of funding for them at that point than a venture capitalist, uh, because they might not even yet know what their business is, exactly. They're not business students. They have an idea that's not proven. It might be a very good idea. They need some money to prove out that idea. If they went and talked to a venture capitalist at that point in time, they would have two strikes against them. One, they they haven't proven their idea. And and two, they don't have uh, business experience. They don't necessarily have credible projections of how this idea can turn into a business. An SBIR grant could buy them six months a year, 18 months to develop the technology, to talk to customers, to understand the business space so that when they do finally talk to venture capitalists, they have um, they just have more information and more knowledge, more experience. And and so I think it's particularly good for students in that domain. If, if this was a class that was being taught in a business school to MBA students, who maybe have years of, of experience in industry and going back for an MBA and are more business focused than technical focused, they would potentially be better positioned to go straight to venture capitalists at that time. The SBIR program is still valuable, but I think it's the most valuable for companies that are being started by people who are technology-focused, engineering-focused, and need funding to prove the concept, prove that their idea can actually work.
1: It's funny you were talking about being a professor. Something I've long wished existed or thought should exist were graduate STEM programs built around the SBIR program. The reason I say that is that one of the big criticisms of SBIR and STTR is the amount of the the gaps. So, you know, you put in your application, it might be six months before you're actually assuming you win until you're actually on contract getting funded. And that funding might last for six to 12 months on your phase one. And then you put in your phase two, and it could be six to 12 months before you get your phase two award, again, assuming you win. I've always thought that a university should come out with a STEM master's program that fit into those funding gaps. So you apply for your SBIR when you begin your first semester, and then you find out if you win around your Christmas break. If you win, you take off the next two semesters to do the SBIR phase one. You do more of your STEM work during the gap between phase one and phase two. And if you win your phase two, then you're leaving with a master's and a funded startup to go to 12 to 18 months of and D under your phase two if you don't win well now you've got your stem masters and you can go find a regular job it just seems like these two programs should be so symbiotic and i, I just haven't seen a university integrate them quite that tightly
0: yeah no it's a great idea and uh, it's certainly a great idea for sbar's like nsf where uh, a lot of the people who are applying to NSF maybe graduate students in a technology space. They're a material science graduate student. They're an AI graduate student. They just finished a master's or, or they're in the middle. And then there is this large funding gap. And that's a really interesting solution. I think the other solution is for the government to get rid of those funding gaps. <laughs> um, I don't know how different agencies handle it, but but the one that I'm in, interacting with right now, works at, at the Air Force, they really have streamlined the process where there is not this one year gap or more between phase one and phase two. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's worth mentioning, we've talked a little bit about the credibility that you get. Uh, from doing an SBIR. The one thing we haven't mentioned is STTR, which I've done as well. And in STTR, you get to partner with a university. And by partnering with the university, it also gives you extra credibility. And I did an STTR, my my current company, Unanimous AI, we're a decision-making company. Again, we amplify the intelligence of groups. And so we partnered actually with Stanford University Medical School to look at amplifying the intelligence of medical teams can medical teams make better, more accurate diagnoses using our technology? And so we brought the technology, and Stanford Medical School brought the medical teams. And this funded STTR effort allowed us to do rigorous research where we had groups of doctors diagnose chest X-rays. They would diagnose chest X-rays either uh, on their own as individuals, they would diagnose as a team by taking a vote, where they would diagnose using our technology, which is called SWARM. And, and what SWARM does is it connects the groups together in real time and they converge together on a diagnosis. And, and the reason it's called SWARM is our technology is modeled on the, the biological principle of SWARM intelligence. And uh, so we did this study with Stanford and collected data and we had really good results. And so we published you know, papers jointly with Stanford on the success of the technology. And that ends up being a really good thing to talk about with investors, to talk about with potential customers, e- even though our, our primary business as a company is not medical. That particular STTR, we had a real interest in the medical space, but we also learned through that STTR that it's a really difficult market for decision making because insurance companies get involved. And if, if you need to be able to have insurance companies pay for doctors to be involved in a collaborative uh, decision, even if that decision is more accurate, insurance companies currently don't have mechanisms for, for handling that. And so it's a market that we know is a, a long, slow market. But when we go and we talk with, say, financial markets and you know, some of our current customers are hedge funds and hedge funds They wanna make more accurate financial predictions and decisions. Uh, They have groups of analysts that they wanna bring together. It's very similar to bringing together groups of doctors. Uh, They don't have to worry about insurance companies. They just want the most accurate forecast they can possibly make. And so the fact that we have these published papers with Stanford Medical School, it shows rigorously, this really works. Uh, it works for making you know diagnoses more accurate. The same exact process can work for making financial forecasts, for making other analogous decisions and forecasts. Again, a really big benefit of the SBIR, STTR uh, program. It's about getting credibility in a rigorous way that you can then use with business customers. And, and it should give you credibility because the government's funding it, a university's partnered with it, And if it works, that means it's real.
1: That's a great point. Thank you for that. I've certainly seen that in my own life where I'm currently on an STTR myself and we're partnered with MIT. And number one, just being with the university is a huge door opener. And so we've approached a number of federal customers and users for the research we're doing. And it's wonderful how it snowballs through a series of warm introductions and the social de-risking that goes on when a bunch of other people who are credible in the space make the introduction. Their credibility rubs off on you, or at least it's worked for us. Yeah, it's a great reminder about the power of the entree that these programs create. Louis, I want to, uh, just curious, as you're building your business, are there any people who, if they're listening, should reach out to you?
0: Sure. Certainly in the government space in the defense space, any teams that would want to be able to amplify the intelligence of, of their teams for some business process, whether it's for forecasting, for decision-making. We're always looking to talk to groups, certainly inside of corporations, but especially inside of you know, government and inside of Department of Defense. We can make teams smarter. We can give more accurate forecasts. And it's really about just communicating with teams to understand what kind of collaborative uh, group decisions they make and how we can make them more accurate. One of our customers is actually the United Nations. They use our swarm software to forecast famines around the world. And what they do is they have groups of experts on climate, experts on politics, experts on supply chain. And they look at different countries around the world and try to predict over the next 18 months, what's the risk of uh, food insecurity in these different nations. And what they found is when those groups come together and swarm, they can make more accurate forecasts faster. And those same exact benefits can be used inside the U.S. government, inside of the Department of Defense. And it's about it's about finding those groups and making them aware that this is possible. And so uh, anybody who's listening to this from that world, definitely reach out and happy to tell you how we can make groups of people get smarter because uh, that's what we do and it, it works.
1: That was Lewis Rosenberg with the Anonymous AI. And for more interviews, education, and resources on the federal market, go to Fedscout.com.